Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. Hoping that you have a wonderful, wonderful Thursday this day. This morning, we have Mr. Robert Feld, who's our guest on the program. He's a senior vice president of public knowledge. Public knowledge promotes freedom of expression and open Internet and access to affordable communications tools and creative works. They work to shape policy on behalf of the public interest. And therefore, they make a great, great, great partner as we talk about co-ops. Good morning, Harold. Good morning. Thank you. Yes. Pleasure and to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time to come out and, and talk. We're going to talk about this affordable communications tools, in particular broadband, which is one of your three major areas that, that your organization works with. Most people hear that broadband is not in rural areas or poor communities. What is that? How did that happen, and what is that about? It's important to understand that broadband networks take a lot of upfront investment, and you recoup that over time. The bigger the network, the higher the cost of building out the network and maintaining the network. So what happens is in cities where everybody's packed in close together, uh, you can make your money back uh, pretty quickly because in just a few blocks you can cover thousands of people. As you move out into the uh, suburbs, it gets uh, somewhat more expensive. And then as you move out further into rural areas, it becomes much more expensive to bring the same level of service to fewer people. So you either have to charge them a lot more in order to make the same amount of profit, or you don't go there. There are other factors that play in, too. You can be actually very close to a city, but if there's some mountains in the way, you know, if you live in New England where, you know, the city's just over the next uh, uh, mountain ridge and uh, that makes it very expensive to pull uh, fiber uh, down there, uh, then, uh, you know, even though you're close to uh, broadband, you don't have it. So it sounds like it's capital, money. It takes money to create these businesses, you know, to put in your towers, to put in your satellites, to put in your fiber. It just takes a lot of money to put it in. So the capitalistic business have to get a return on their investment. So that means the more people that get signed up, the more people they can charge, the more income they can have, the more profit they can have, and therefore they'll go into dense populations i.e. New York City, San Diego, or L.A., or D.C., Chicago, then cities, and they can get a return on investment. That's exactly right, and there are other factors, too. We've got a problem we call digital redlining. Uh, people are familiar with redlining, which was the uh, practice of banks back in the 30s, 
outlining poorer neighborhoods, particularly black neighborhoods and other communities of color, and saying, well, we're not going to lend money you know, over there. And so those areas had a serious absence of capital and capital investment. There's a similar problem that it just perpetuates down to today, where you have uh, companies like Verizon, when they want to uh, deploy Fios, they are happy to deploy it in some neighborhoods in D.C., but in other neighborhoods in D.C., they are not uh, happy to deploy it because they expect that those customers are poorer. They therefore uh, are going to buy the lower end of services rather than the higher end uh, of services, and they're not going to buy any of the additional add-on services. So for all of these reasons, it all boils down to money, um, and that can be a problem in urban communities, but it's especially a problem in rural communities. I mean, even places where you got, you know, McMansions on five acres of land can not have broadband because it's just too expensive to bring it out there. Money, 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 money. I mean, you, you gave two examples, but it basically comes down to money. Yeah. One is capital. You, you have to have money to invest into these businesses, into these equipment. So that's one. And the, so they have one to return off their money. We talked about this one already, and I've talked about this a lot in the almost eight years we've been on this air because in my MBA program, all I was taught that every decision was made predominantly because of which one gave the be biggest return on investment, ROI, we, ROI, ROI. Okay. So. Yeah. And that's, I, I want to stress that because there are places where it might be profitable to deploy the network, but it's not profitable enough. It's not a big enough return on investment uh, to interest the companies. And in fact, for publicly traded companies, they want to show huge return on investment. So if you're a publicly traded company like Comcast or Spectrum or uh, uh, AT&T, you want to avoid even areas that are profitable if they're going to bring down your total revenue uh, per customer. And so when you talk about these neighborhoods, Washington, D.C., that may be Ward 7, Ward 8, lower neighborhoods, it used to be Shaw, now it's no longer Shaw, uh, has been gentrified, but these poor neighborhoods where if files were to come in and the people in these neighborhoods, and I used to do property management in D.C., so I would manage properties in all four wards, but in Ward 8 particularly, you have people that's 30% of the median family income. you got a family of four that may have $30,000 of income. They will probably, well, they might get <laughs> cable, okay, because TV is very important to them, but it's going to be the lower end of it, like you said, and so it won't be profitable enough. They either won't get it or they'll get the lower end of it. Right. Okay. So it uh, it all boils down to money for whatever reason, and the the one that whatever the hurdle is of a return on investment, when a company is looking to go into a neighborhood, rural or urban, is whether or not they'll get a large enough return on investment. Got it. That's the problem for getting broadband to everybody. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Now, As, um, I I've got a friend here named Richard Shockey who likes to say, you know. Money is the answer. What was the question? <laughs> okay. I have a quote. I, Yoga is the answer no matter the question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So my yoga folk really like that. Uh, 
are you aware of, and I am, but I think you are, that, that America has had this technological problem in the past? And I'm thinking of electricity. So could you talk a little bit about in the 30s and 40s how we had this same problem, return on investment, investment not high enough, so those companies, capital companies, would not go to rural areas to put in electricity? Right, Describe exactly. That. It was the same for electricity, also for telephone. This is a standard economic problem because to build out these networks takes this huge upfront cost, and the private sector is only going to carry it so far. So when we did uh, electrification for the country, you get you know about 70 80% of the country where it'll be – profitable enough to attract some investment and then it stops it always stops when you're talking about that to get that last you know 20 30 percent of people that the market just isn't going to serve on its own and this was one of the uh, important things that um, uh, roosevelt did in the new deal was to say you know everybody needs electricity now because this is the other thing that happens the new technology comes in and at first, it's kind of a luxury you don't need it. You know, if you remember, you know, even until about 10 years ago, you still had plenty of people say, ah, I don't need high-speed Internet. You know, what do I need it for? I'm, I don't need to stream cat videos. But then you cross a point where we recognize that it's critical for maintaining participation in society and for a standard of living that we believe that everybody is entitled to. So, you know, we went through this with electricity. You know, we started, you know, electricity back in the end of the 19th century. And then, you know, we reached the point where, okay, enough people had it that we started to be selling all kinds of things that depended on it, electric lights and appliances. And if you didn't have it, you couldn't use it. And uh, now, of course, we know that you know if the power goes out, it's a huge, huge deal. I mean, especially if it's like a heat wave or something where you lose your air conditioning, people can die um, if we don't have it. So this is the kind of transition we've seen, and this is where we are now with the broadband. We've reached the point where the private sector is just not going to do it anymore, but everything in our lives now is becoming dependent on broadband. You know, we saw this particularly with COVID. Yes, particularly with COVID. Now, if you go back, and I remember studying Abe Lincoln, and he studied under a candlelight. He didn't have electricity. Born in 1809, president 1861-65. So he studied and we don't think about it now. Today, it is just norm that everybody has electricity. Uh, but Martin Lowry, uh, who, who is now retired, uh, but he was the vice president of the Rural Electric Cooperative Association, and he was saying that, you know, the Rural Electric Co-op Association would go into these countries, these tribes that don't have villages that don't have electricity, and he said when, the, when they turn the electricity on, so some of their, the people from these, he said, big burly guys would go and cross countries, across the water somewhere, put in the lines, put in the poles. He said some of those guys would be in tears with the joy that they see that these people get for having electricity. Now, that happens today, but we in America, it is so accustomed to having electricity. We can't think back when that was what it was like here. 
But this broadband is really clear for people that don't have it. Now, people that, some people that don't have it don't know that they need it, and there are some people that know that they need it and cannot get it. So how did you get involved in this broadband question? It's uh, kind of an interesting story. I started out when I was uh, 17 working on an early uh, what we would now call a uh, Ethernet network uh, among three hospitals in Boston where I grew up. And so I started to get interested in this even going back to the uh, to the 80s. And when I got online and found like this was amazing and incredible. You know, I could talk to people all over the country, all over the world, you know, and it was just like this thing is going to revolutionize everything. And then... You know, my mother was an urban planner who did dropout prevention and other work back in the 80s and 90s. And so I learned from her that things don't just happen. you you got to have policy that makes it happen. So I was like, okay, if we want this to get to everybody, we're going to have to have real work, real policy to try to make sure that everybody uh, has it. So we're going to take our first break. Harold and we'll come back. I like your mother's piece. Things don't just happen. You got to do something. There's got to be action, got to be policies. And we're going to come back and talk not too much about the problem, but some of the solutions that you're working on today. So everybody out there, please don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We we have Mr. Harold Feld on with us this morning, and we're talking about broadband and the absence of broadband in some communities, urban and rural communities. We've talked about the cooperative model, the capitalistic model of you have to have a return on investment, and that the return on investment has to be high enough in order for these companies to go in and lay out the capital, the money that's needed to bring in the equipment, the systems that one needs. And even if it's an urban area, they may not go to a certain community or may charge higher prices because the folks in that community are poor and therefore they may not get all of the higher-end amenities or what they offer. So they are sometimes choose not to go into those communities or if they're in those communities, charge a higher price. And too often these poor communities are black, brown, native people. And so it looks like, feels like, tastes like discrimination based on race, but it's all economics. It's all economics. And Mr. Harold Feld has already talked to us a little bit about it, and we also talked about this was what was happening in the 30s and FDR so what did FDR do to help solve this electrical and telephone problem in the 30s? Well, one of the important innovations uh, was encouraging the formation of electric cooperatives because cooperatives take the good part of the corporate structure, that ability to gather up capital, to, you know, invest in things, have a – um, shield from liability for the individuals who are, are running it, but it takes away the profit motive. It makes the cooperative be accountable 
to the members and to the local community. So it's the people who actually want to be there, who want to provide service, who want to see their communities grow and benefit from uh, the, uh, in the 1930s, electricity. Um, so they're the ones who are willing to do it. And uh, I, you know, people uh, sometimes are down on co-ops as not being American and, and, you know, all socialism and all of that. And I'm like, well, look, what is more American than communities coming together to meet their own needs? And that's what co-ops did. And you know, the New Deal FDR took advantage of that by creating laws that encouraged the formation of electric co-ops and creating programs in the Department of Agriculture to fund uh, these uh, co-ops so that they could get that high investment cost because for a lot of these networks the issue is that high investment cost going in. Once the network is built uh, you have to spend some money maintaining it and upgrading it but you know the biggest expense is getting the thing built in the first place. So I love this thing of what's more American than communities coming together to solve their problem. And I would say what's more American than communities coming together to solve their problems and solving it democratically in the principles of cooperation of values and principles. And just very quickly, the principle of volunteer and open membership is the first principle. And that's why I like co-ops. I'm African-American. You are white or Caucasian or European-American, whatever you want to call it. And we can all be in a co-op. It doesn't make any difference about age, gender, political affiliation, religious affiliation, volunteer and open membership. If it's a co-op, democratic member controls the second principle, one member, one vote, not based on how much money you have, but your member, you get one vote. Member economic participation, you can put money in, and when then, if there's a profit, you get some money back out. And it's not focused on profit. That's the other thing that you've already talked about. Autonomy and independence. The cooperatives must have control. Those members must have control. And you've also talked about the fifth principle, education, training, and information. That's the, And that was the first reason I liked co-ops, as I was managing housing co-ops in Washington, D.C., and watching people with very little education at best of high school make very intelligent, long-term decisions because they've gotten educated on how to run this business. The sixth principle is cooperation among cooperatives, cooper, cooperatives helping each other, and the seventh principle is concern for the community. So that's in the DNA of co-ops is taking care of community and community issues. So that's why I like co-ops and it's sort of coming together to solve their own problems, doing it democratically within these principles, why I happen to love co-ops. So what have you seen and how did you become knowledgeable about co-ops? Well, I uh, started to look at co-ops back about 15 years ago as one potential model for how to solve this. Uh, you know, historically, you know, we used to have co-ops for a lot of things. But, you know, my grandparents grew up in a housing co-op in New York City. Uh, so uh, I was always used to this idea of, hey, there's this thing called cooperatives. You know, when I grew up, my parents were in a uh, healthcare cooperative. So uh, we, I was like, you know, this this model works. This model makes sense. And looking out, historically, you could see there were a lot of communities that wanted to do this. There are a lot of barriers, though. One big one was 
if you're an existing cooperative like an electric cooperative, uh, generally there are lots of state laws and some federal laws that require you to stay in your lane. Um, if you're going to be an electric cooperative, then you're just supposed to be an electric cooperative. You're not supposed to uh, provide other services. There are a lot of programs that were structured, uh, you know, subsidy programs that were structured in ways that only provided money to private companies and didn't allow uh, cooperatives or other nonprofits to apply for subsidies. So there were a lot of issues. And then within the last five years, if people have been looking more and more earnestly for solutions, cooperatives have really been having a moment and coming into their own. You know, they're there. They're in the community. They've already, in the case of pre-existing co-ops, they've already built a network. So we've seen over the last five years in a lot of places, particularly where electric co-ops are more common, rural areas, you know, in states like Alabama, Mississippi, where uh, you uh, have seen co-ops actively getting into the broadband business and providing their communities with affordable broadband solutions. So I have it there are 900 electrical co-ops across the United States, and they they cover about 75% of the land mass. So it's a huge electrical grid that if these co-ops were not there, it's not 75% of the people because it's a lot of rural area, but it's a lot of people that would not have electricity. And it has really helped our economy having these electrical co-ops. And I've also been told on this show that when FDR when they changed the laws so that these co-ops could go into existence, they also loaned them money through the Department of Ag, and this money was paid back. So it was a good bet for taxpayer dollars that the communities got what they needed. They used federal government money, taxpayers' money, to start and do this build-out, and over time they paid this money back. That's an important point is that, a lot of times, once you get the network up and running, it will pay for itself. Yeah. So we have the Rural Utility Service, which has some money for uh, rural broadband. It's one of its uh, programs. But you know, we can see that where you lend out, as you said, when you lend out the money, um, if you're willing to take a long-term, like a 20-year loan, does get paid back but you know you go to a for-profit company and tell them this will pay for itself in 20 years they're like that's forever i mean you know we want something that's going to pay for itself in 20 months at the most not 20 years so you know this isn't going to happen from big companies and you know frankly we've seen in a lot of places because we've spent billions of federal dollars trying to get private companies to serve these areas and they just don't do it they'll They'll say thank you very much for the money, and they'll uh, you know upgrade their existing phone uh, networks a little. So you have a lot of rural areas that have you know very slow DSL, but not nearly enough to do what you need to do these days on uh, uh, online. I mean, it's effectively not having any broadband at all. Effectively not having broadband when you even take government monies uh, and give it to larger corporations because they are focused on, they're driven by return on investment. Before we take our second break here, we've got a minute. Would you please tell folks how they could get a hold of you or your organization? So 
my organization's Public Knowledge. Uh, we are at www.publicknowledge.org, and uh, we're a uh, non-commercial uh, 501c3 organization. So we try to provide people with information and help these uh, communities, and uh, obviously we appreciate uh, whatever support we can get. So if they go to www.publicknowledge.org, .org. Yep. Is there, there a donate button on there? Oh, absolutely. All right. We're going to take our next break here. I'm going to go on and take a look at it and see how hard or easy it is to donate. I like the work you guys are doing. And everybody out there, we'll be right back to talk more about broadband, the problem. But we're going to get into the solutions. What are some of the solutions so that folks out there in rural areas and urban areas can get affordable the affordable internet. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. We have Mr. Harold Feld, uh, who's the Senior Vice President of Public Knowledge. And you can go to www.publicknowledge.org to get more information. And it is easy. Right at the top of their page, there's a button for Act Now and there's a button for Donate. It says, though, 25, 50, and 100. What does that mean, Harold? What do you, what are oh, you getting? Those are just recommended donation levels. You know, but uh, folks should feel free to give uh, whatever they can. Every little bit helps to keep the lights on. Okay, so I, I I hit the hundred button and it took me to something donation amount and it says twenty five fifty hundred two fifty a thousand twenty five hundred and you can give any amount custom amount. Okay, so later we're going to get into more of what public knowledge does, but I want to talk about the solution to this broadband policy. We've already said that we've had this kind of power of technology before with electricity and telephones government stepped in and helped by giving funding and changing laws to make the rural electric co-ops a possibility there's 900 businesses in today's world that are electric co-ops that help those communities with electricity and other things other community kinds of issues because the seventh principle is concern for community so what are solutions to this broadband policy that we are looking forward to today to solve it so that every home, every home can have broadband at an affordable price? So I call this the problem of the broadband equation, which is you have to have enough return on your investment for a company, as we said, you have to have enough return on your investment to justify the cost. So there are three things you can do. One is you can make the customers more valuable. Well, how do you do that? Well, one way is to give people who are poor a subsidy so that they can afford to pay the higher prices. And we've seen now government did this for uh, broadband as part of the COVID relief package. It's called the Emergency Broadband Benefit. You can apply for that. And uh, if you're eligible, you can get a $50 a month subsidy to help pay for your uh, broadband. So that's one possible approach. The other is well, try to lower. I'm sorry, just hold on. So the government if I make a certain amount of money, like the same yep. lower amount, or then the government can give me $50 for broadband. But how does that solve it if there's no broadband there? 
that's exactly part of the problem. Now, okay. you know, if we had a program like that on a permanent basis, then you would probably get more providers who'd be willing to go into these communities, into these neighborhoods, and say, well, I know that the customers are going to be able to afford it because the government's going to you know, provide the subsidy. But, you know, the fact is that it's not a guarantee at all. It's a help certainly for people who have access to the network and need to afford the network, but it's not a really good way of bringing networks to places where they aren't. It's not a long-term solution. It's a solution for those people that have access that don't have the money today. But for those people that don't have access, then that doesn't help them at all. Okay, that's the first solution. Then the next thing we have are programs that try to lower the cost to the ISP, the Internet service provider, in order to bring the service to the community. So we have some federal programs that are designed to pay a subsidy. So we have something uh, at the FCC that's called the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, where you have providers that are, say, I'll serve these rural areas if you pay me this much money, and then the uh, FCC looks and sees uh, uh, which projects uh, to fund. Or you can take assets that the city has, like sewers and pipelines, and say, hey, you know, we're going to let you guys pull your fiber through these city-owned conduits rather than make you dig through the streets and charge you a whole lot of money. Again, those help some, but we've seen, particularly uh, in rural areas, that you know, you have companies particularly like AT&T and Frontier and uh, other big companies that will step up and say, hey, you know, give us the money. And they've got good lobbying teams, so they're good at getting the money, but they're not very good at spending the money on uh, rural customers. So, you know, that solution helps some. Uh, and certainly we've encouraged the federal government as part of the uh, upcoming infrastructure program to commit enough money to try to build out broadband in all communities. So, you know, they're talking about a $65 billion uh, broadband package that uh, about $40 billion of that's going to go for, right, at least so far, who knows if it'll actually happen, but $40 billion of that will go for building out the networks, particularly in rural areas. But the third solution, which I think is the most important, is you find people who are willing to provide the service who aren't as concerned about making the profit. So you can say, hey, if you're a co-op or uh, some other community uh, institution and say, you know what, I just need to be able to pay this off. I don't need to make a big profit. It has to be viable, but it doesn't have to be hugely profitable. So you know what, I can do it. Give me the money and I'll actually build it because I'm here in the community and I want to see the community uh, succeed. So we think this combination of a one-time huge investment of federal money to pay that enormous price to actually create the networks and prioritizing money to folks who are in the communities, whether that's municipal uh, broadband systems or particularly co-ops, to actually build out and provide service to the communities. We think that is the best way to get these networks out to all Americans. So, And I want to add, it's not just a rural solution. Urban co-ops for broadband are also a real thing today, and 
uh, they're important, and you know they're part of the uh, solution to providing broadband to every community. So I want to come back to that and try to figure out what you're saying there. But I want to first go back to co-ops are really interested in three things: people, planet, and then profit. Okay, they're interested in profit because you have to make some profit eventually, so you can either pay back loans or do other things in the in the um, community or put money into business for future growth and replacement of, of equipment and so forth. So profit is important, but people first, the community, the planet in terms of solving climate change and stuff like that, and then, then profit. Where capitalist companies also have three things that they're interested in, and they all start with P, like people, planet, and profit, but their profit number one is the thing that they're interested in. The second thing they're interested in is profit. And the third thing they're interested in is profit. So when you get this focus on total on profit, at least that's the education that I had in dealing with this capitalistic society, that was what was in return on investment. We've already talked about that. So I I would find co-ops would be a the third one important, provide the services and not the profit. But that takes the government to get the laws in place for co-ops to do that and then the money. So what have you found there? I mean, it, it would be money on this $65 billion, $40 billion if it went to co-ops, but having the laws. For instance, rural electric co-ops, I've been into some meetings. The uh, NCBA, National Cooperative Business Association, has, a, uh, I think, the fifth year now called Cooperative Impact. And I was in a meeting with a, a rural electric co-op in Virginia, uh, southern Virginia, and they had gone into with their schools and they had trained the students. They, well, they put in broadband, put in broadband in the schools, and they also put in solar, and they had the kids coming out and learning how to do that. They had classes in learning how to, how to uh, work with all of this. So what has to happen to get those perhaps rural electric that's already in there, these 900 rural electrics, so that they could provide that broadband? So the first thing and the thing that we're focused on at the moment at the federal level is to make sure that these programs are structured in a way that uh, permits and from the perspective of our advocacy encourages co-ops to be able to participate and apply. One of the big fights we've had over the structure of this uh, has been whether there ought to be a priority given to co-ops and other community-based organizations. Uh, But even if we don't manage to get that through, what we want is to make sure that there's a level playing field that doesn't favor private companies over co-ops when we have these programs. We also want to see that the way these programs are structured provides the would-be applicants with technical assistance on their applications. These applications can be very long and complicated, and you know, if you're a big company, then you have plenty of people who know how to do that. If you're a co-op that doesn't have uh, a huge legal department and you've you know never applied for these types of programs before it can be you know a very daunting challenge and you can get knocked out because of a uh, you know some paperwork mistake so we want to make sure that the funding that's coming uh, hopefully in the infrastructure package includes technical uh, support for co-ops and others who want to apply as well as making sure that the programs are structured so that 
at the least, co-ops have the same chance of getting it uh, as big companies uh, do. The other thing that's important is the states have to go through their own rules because a lot of states, particularly in the 30s, you know, when we were setting these things up, had laws to make sure that co-ops stay in their lane and don't, you know, offer other services. Uh, so there are plenty of states that say, well, okay, if you're organized as an electrical cooperative, you can only do electricity. Uh, if you're organized as a telephone cooperative, you can only do telephone service and not also broadband service. So we've seen a lot of states have been going through their uh, state laws and opening up so that if you already have a network in place, if you're an electric co-op and you have a network in place, then great, we want you providing broadband. Yes, that seems to be a very logical place to have it because they are already in the, all of the homes in that particular community or area. And it would be easy then to provide this broadband once you have the money and the know-how to put in the systems that you're talking about. And therefore, you ought to be able to charge a price that people can afford because you're not looking for profit. You're looking for providing the service to that community. Fantastic. You were talking about urban. This is mainly rural, but what are some examples of where the the broadband is not in an urban setting. What are some examples of that? Well, uh, one of my favorite examples is a community called Red Hook in Manhattan, which is a huge public uh, housing uh, project. And they formed something called the Red Hook Broadband Cooperative, which the cooperative leases a fiber line that comes into the public housing project. And then they use Wi-Fi off of this high-capacity fiber line to provide affordable broadband to everybody in the public housing project. And there are a couple of other projects like that. There's a project called Wireless Harlem. And, you know, I think that uh, there's a lot of need for uh, these kind of projects, and I'm hopeful that uh, we will see more of them springing up going forward. Do they lease this broadband from the fiber line from the AT&Ts of the world, the larger corp, corps, or how, how do they lease the fiber line? Yeah, because what happens is you have oftentimes, you know, if you're a company like an AT&T or uh, Verizon or uh, Comcast, you have your residential broadband and then you have your enterprise broadband, which is a separate unit that has – these high-capacity fiber lines that they make available to businesses for very high-capacity broadband. So, you know, your uh, banks and your, uh, you know, ATMs and all of that are running off fiber in the streets that are commercial fiber. They're not, they're not necessarily available for uh, residential users. So the co-op says, well, okay, I'm a business, lease me a business line. And so... The company says, sure, and they lease a high-capacity business line the same way they would to, you know, any other business. Uh, and then the uh, co-op handles the, you know, what we call the last mile, that connection between the fiber that's used to connect to the Internet and the actual apartment or uh, uh, subscriber. So that use a post office term delivering mail to the last mile which is always the most expensive letter right. to deliver but the post office starting with Abraham Lincoln 
was it Abraham Lincoln? No, George Washington, first postmaster general. That was what the rule was. I delivered. I, I always tell people we have a founding tradition in this country. It's one of our fundamental values that we are all connected to each other that we communicate with each other. That's why the Postmaster General was one of the first things they created. It's in the Constitution to create postal roads. It used to be a cabinet-level position because from the beginning of the Republic, we said it is so important for all Americans to be able to communicate with each other and be one country. It is a role, a constitutional role of the federal government to make that happen. At an affordable price. At an affordable price, okay. exactly. I mean, it has to be, it has to be real. I talk about sometimes. I talk about there's broadband access, and then there's actual broadband access because yeah. you know you have places where it might, in theory, be available, but if you can't afford it or you don't have the equipment, you know, it might as well not be there. Well, it really isn't there if you cannot afford it. That family that cannot afford it, the kid will not be able to do the schoolwork, and COVID has shown that. And listen, we're going to take our final break. It's fun talking to you and it goes by very very quickly and we want to talk more about the future particularly coming out of covid what what we can look for and what we need to do we'll be right back please don't touch that down information is power national co-op bank is, is sponsoring this program to give you information about co-ops the benefits of co-ops NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for Americans' cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. And we're talking to Mr. Harold Fell this morning of Public Knowledge. He's a senior vice president there, talking about providing broadband to urban communities that are perhaps low-income or rural communities and how to get that and what the government role can be in getting that done. Harold, I went to your webpage, www.publicknowledge.org, and I did find that donating is very easy. You hit the Donate button, and you can decide how much you want to give, and then you put it, just put in your credit card, and it, it happens. So I'm... In the process of doing that, I really like the work that you guys do. I did not know anything about public knowledge before a friend of ours told me about the particular work that you're doing in this broadband area, and you've gotten introduced to co-ops 15 years ago, you've told us, and find it as one of the three solutions, and you said the most important. I find it the best of the three, as you've talked about them, the best of the three solutions would be co-ops from Vernon's view. So I really want to see and promote the work that you guys are doing. So I am making a pledge, and I'll get that done as soon as we're off. I'll finish putting mine in my address and email and send it up to you guys. Thank you for the work you're doing. And thank really you for the support. It. We really appreciate it. So before we took the break, we were talking about Red Hook and the this is Manhattan, the most dense area you can think about, population-wise, and the largest number of people per square mile or whatever you want to, however you want to measure it. But this low-income housing, public housing, did not have 
access to broadband, and so they took it on themselves. This is what happens in co-ops. Community members take it on themselves to provide this broadband, and they found a solution cooperatively. Got any other examples in urban areas? Yeah, and it's funny because even when you're in an urban area, there might be parts that, because of terrain or whatever, are hard to serve. So I was... uh, Talking to some folks uh, a couple of months ago who live in a town in Michigan called Webster that's uh, pretty close to um, Michigan, University of Ann Arbor. And that's a town of about 9,000 people, and most of it is served by the local cable company. But there are a couple of miles where it's just rural enough that the cable company never built out to that area. So, you know, they were sitting there with virtually no uh, working broadband, and they uh, said, you know what, three people got together and said, we're going to form a cooperative for the hundred or so people who live in our uh, neighborhood here. And they put up a tower that uses wireless, not mobile wireless, but they beam the connection directly to people's houses and uh, it goes to this you know, tower and connects back to a you know, fiber line that they paid to bring out uh, to the tower. Uh, and now they have real broadband. You know, These are uh, folks who, until uh, a couple of years ago, uh, weren't able to, to do anything online, really. You could get satellite, but it's very expensive. It's slow, and it's got a really tight bandwidth cap. I've got uh, a friend of mine who's a rural advocate, Uh, who's stuck on satellite who says, you know you live in rural America when you go through your monthly Internet for downloading a security patch. And maybe there'll be new uh, satellite technology like Starlink, but right now it's not there. And, you know, people forming these co-ops, whether it's a a wireless co-op like Webster or uh, a Wi-Fi situation like in Red Hook, you know, or plenty of co-ops that are providing uh, fiber there, you know, there's a co-op for every community and every one of these situations where the economics just don't work for a private company. The economics just don't work for a private company and co-ops do because they're not profit motivated. So we're getting ready to come out of COVID-19, or at least we hope we are. How How do you see co-ops are particularly how do you see co-ops particularly helping with this broadband situation as we come out of COVID-19? Well, one of the things that's important uh, is, as we mentioned a little earlier in the show, is it's not just getting the network deployed. And it's not even just making sure the network is affordable. You have to have devices that connect to the network. We found, you know, during COVID that there were a lot of families, even if they could get the the low-cost broadband um, that a number of providers made available, they didn't have a a laptop in the home. uh, And you can't, uh, you know, do your homework on your your mobile phone, at least not uh, easily. So... The future of co-ops, because they're embedded in the community, is helping to provide devices. Um, This is a big need. And helping to provide digital literacy and training. Uh, You know, this isn't intuitive. I mean, that'll sound funny to people who grew up with the World Wide Web. But, you know, the fact is that uh, there was a study that just came out this past week that showed that 
uh, it takes huge amounts of you know sophisticated uh, training just to fill out a job application sometimes you know and co-ops are going to be very important in helping bring devices and training to people in their communities as i expected at this Hours gone by extremely quickly. I did finish the donation while you were talking there, so it was very, very easy. Please go into www. You tell what's your webpage? www.publicknowledge.org. And you one can word: hit, public knowledge. Hit the donate button, and that's very easy. Or you can get into this act now. Action: What actions one can take to help this legislation happen? What do you want to leave people with? What's the message you want to leave people with? What I want to leave people with is you don't have to sit by and let things happen. You know, I got into this over 20 years ago because I said I learned from my mom that um, things don't just happen. People have to make them happen. So right now there's a huge opportunity in Congress for people to uh, uh, let their uh, members of Congress know that we need this infrastructure package. We need broadband to be part of the infrastructure package. We need not just money for companies to go into this infrastructure package, but money for uh, co-ops and other community-based uh, providers. And then afterwards, they need to uh, look for opportunities to participate. And you, too, can form a co-op if you need to. You can form a co-op, everybody out there. Please have a great week. We'll see you back next Thursday. Live cooperatively and form your own co-op. We'll see you next Thursday.